When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Mpo Ngobe and Cindy Sobebe, authors of Indigenous Archives in Postcolonial Contexts, Reading the Past in Africa, published by Rutledge in 2024. Drawing on five years of research and examples from Zimbabwe, Botswana, and South Africa, Indigenous Archives in Postcolonial Contexts analyzes archives in the African context. This book demonstrates how the voices of marginalized can be incorporated into archives and explores issues such as authentication, ownership, and copyright, and extended or counter archives. Mpo Ngobe is a professor of information science and the executive director of library and information services at the University of South Africa. And Cindy Sobebe is a lecturer in the School of Information Studies at Charles Stewart University. Mpo and Cindy So, welcome to New Books Network. Uh, before we start talking about your new book, I would really love if you could each introduce yourselves. Could you share a little bit about where you grew up and the education path that brought you to your current work? Paul, do you want to go first? Thank you, Jennifer, for hosting us and uh, good uh, afternoon. My name is Mpongwepe. I grew up in the then Northern Transvaal. Uh, Northern Transvaal is now called Limpopo Province. It was named uh, Limpopo Province after 2020, after 2003. It is a predominantly rural area. That is where I studied uh, uh, my primary school and secondary school before I proceeded to the then University of the North which is now called the University of Limpopo. The village that I grew up in Limpopo province in South Africa is called Mahaveng. That is, uh, it features mostly in our book because we used 
practical example from where we grew up as we were both uh, we were we were taught this uh, indigenous way of archiving uh, informally so and uh, i completed my ba in philosophy at the university of the north and proceeded to do information science at the same university and then i did my honors masters and phd at the university of south africa and in terms of work i've worked for uh, ulis library services uh, technical Northern Houting, the UNICEF, Bloomfontein Legal Deposit, and then the uh, Cape Town Provincial Archives and National Archives of South Africa, as well as the Auditor General of South Africa, uh, until I joined the University of South Africa as a lecturer and now as the university librarian and archivist. I think I will pause there. Thank you. Super, thank you so much. Sindiso, do you want to go next? Yes. Uh, myself, uh, I grew up in Zimbabwe, in uh, one of the cities there called Bulawayo. That's where I grew up. That's where I did my primary school, also my secondary school. Then I proceeded to the University of Zimbabwe, which is in Harare in Zimbabwe. That's where then I did my Bachelor of Arts degree, specializing in archaeology and Ndebele. So Ndebele is one of the uh, languages spoken in Zimbabwe. So that was one of the subjects I was doing in archaeology. So through these subjects, that's when I began to appreciate the African ways of knowledge through archaeology, through Ndebele, that's when I began to appreciate the value of the African knowledge systems. After completing my, my degree at the University of Zimbabwe, I worked as a school teacher in rural areas of Zimbabwe. That's where I also got the experience of the African ways of knowing again, because in rural areas, that's where some people are still practicing some of the traditions which we're writing about in our book. So I taught for five years in rural areas. I then moved to National Archives of Zimbabwe. That's when I was working as an archivist for 12 years. So through my career as an archivist there, I was involved in oral history projects where we were targeting minority groups. We also targeting indigenous groups, which are found in Zimbabwe, like the Sen and the Khoi people. So we're documenting their stories because we're saying there's nothing much which can be found at the National Archives of Zimbabwe concerning their, their history, their life. So, in my time as an activist at the National Archives of Zimbabwe, I also did my master's with the university, National University of Science and Technology. So that was a master's in library information science. I also did my, during that time, also did my PhD in information studies with the University of South Africa. So my thesis was also on documenting the minority groups, again, concentrating on the oral history methodology. 
So it, it also involved documenting the stories of the indigenous groups. Uh, then uh, I then moved to South Africa, where I began, where I was a post postdoc research fellow at the University of South Africa, that is Information Science Department. I worked there for two years. Then I moved to Australia, end of 2023, of which now I'm a lecturer in information studies. That's what I can say about myself. Thank you so much. So turning then to your new book, uh, this book starts off by exploring the concept of indigenous archives. And I would love if you could explain for listeners, how do indigenous archives differ from Eurocentric notions of archives and records? Why is it so important to establish this concept of indigenous archives? Thank you for the question, uh, Jennifer. First, we have to acknowledge that uh, Eurocentric notion of archiving have has developed because it was given a space uh, to develop than the indigenous uh, uh, archives. And while we also uh, were we were ex we were exposed to the indigenous way of archiving as we have uh, given the in our background, but we were educated in the Western way. And even the theories that we learned at the school were related to the Western way of learning. So for us, given the, the context, uh, the background that we gave in terms of our involvement and participation in indigenous uh, archives. So we had to look at the Western way of archiving and then what is defined as archives, and then look at indigenous way and say, what would be regarded as archives in indigenous way? Because actually the word archive is not really clear in our indigenous languages. And then we had we came back to say that uh, uh, as we look into the indigenous uh, archives and say that we can segregate it and then most people are looking at uh, oral tradition as a way in which Africans has always been preserving knowledge to the next generation. But looking at oral tradition again is not also limited to oral history or oral testimony. There are other way of uh, oral tradition that is often left out such as a family praises of which is also the focus of our book and uh, folk tales and nomenclatures which is also focus of our books and then there are proverbs, there are riddles, there are a number of uh, things. So looking at that one, I would say, even that uh, background, I would say the biggest uh, difference between the Eurocentric way of archiving and the indigenous way would be in terms of our uh, space. If we look at the archival threshold, the space in a Western way is uh, more of uh, the archives repository, whereas in an indigenous way, these are not uh, happening in a, in an archives repository. Nomenclature, as long as you know the principles of nomenclature, it is everywhere. It is open. Uh, your 
uh, rock art paintings, they are in the certain space where it is uh, open. The same as family places, they are recited in uh, its natural settings, or it can be recited anyway, but as we are going, might be discussing the authentication, it, it does happen in a natural setting. So I will uh, pause there and then allow Cindy So to take over from here. Thank you. Okay. One of the motivations of researching this book was that uh, we noted that uh, few Africans are visiting the archives. In fact, most of the Africans, they don't even know what archives are. So it's a concept which is, which is not understood by many people in Africa because it has nothing much to do with their life. So we say to ourselves, but as Africans, we have our own ways of knowing. We, we have our own archives if I can use that uh, word, archive. Uh, when you look at the Eurocentric definition of a record, it's more of something which is written down, something which is recorded. But for, for Africa, when we talk of African ways of knowledge, we talk of performances. We talk of orality. You'll find that uh, when we talk of proverbs, when we talk of records, these were the vehicles which were used to transmit culture or traditions from one generation to another. They were more than just the entertainment. So children were taught how to behave through proverbs, through rituals. So that's how important the, the what we call indigenous archives are in an African in an African setup. I can just pause there for now. <laughs> sure. I'm sure we'll talk more about these ideas of what a what a what a record really is and, and how we should understand that. Um but in in the second chapter you move on to exploring the difference between decolonization of archives and re-Africanization of archives. And I really liked this distinction that you make. So what are the some of the problems with this basic idea of decolonizing archives? And what is the alternative that Africanization provides? Maybe I can start. Yeah, let me start. So uh, after independence, many African countries started talking about decolonization. But when you look deeply what they were talking about, some of them were just talking about changing colonial names to local names. So decolonization was just on a superficial level. But when we talk of Africanization, it is much more deeper, like it's a deeper epistemological approach of excavating these African ways of knowing. It is a, a conscious, conscious reminder to Africans for them to, to excavate these African ways of knowing. That is an African, you begin to appreciate where you come from, where you are going. But when we look at decolonization in an archival setup, it was just adding one or two things which talk we talk about Africans. So it was just more of patching up a colonial archive. But now when we talk of Africanization, we're saying to ourselves, 
uh, Eurocentric archives. Let's not interfere with them, but let's try to build our knowledge from 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 bottom up, and they operate parallel with the Eurocentric archives because it's so difficult to to merge two two worldviews or two two uh, two worldviews. For example. Eurocentric approach to archives and uh, indigenous approach to archives. It's very difficult to miss them. So I'll just pause there for the meantime. Yes, maybe to add on what Cindy so was uh, saying, uh, for us, uh, for me, just to give the, the practical example of how we view what decolonization in, in, the, in the context of this book, and how we, we view the Africanization. For us, the decolonization, we, uh, we said that already uh, we are not studying on a clean slate. We are defined by something like colonialism. So we need to decolonize. And uh, in that perspective, we said, no, some archives are already existing in an archives repository. How do we decolonize them? So because Africans have been uh, doing a uh, rock a paint a rock art paintings. So decolonization can happen in the form of the murals, where in some of the archival groups in the archives repository can be painted on the walls as murals and people can be able to see them. And we have used practical examples that are here in Pretoria and also in uh, Alexander Township near Santin and also the others that are in Mafiking. Uh, where in the are pictures of uh, some of the kings which are in the archives, but the the muralist or the artists they painted them, and people can be able to see. But what we saw lacking from those murals was that there is no metadata linking those uh, uh, pictures to the archives where they they are in the custody. So those are, that is a, how the practical way of for us is saying that let us decolonize archives this way rather than extending. But we are talking about archives that are already existing in the archives repository. Then in our book, we call them extended archives. It's extended archives in the sense that they are already existing somewhere. But here we are just taking those are uh, taking them closer to the people so that they can see that this archives repository, these archives exist elsewhere in the archives repository. And then they can go there and uh, be able to access them. That is where now we the, the West is meeting the Africans. It's not that we the, the two should be fighting. Then they can meet each other this way through the decolonization as we as we view it. And then in terms of Africanization, we see the family praise, praises as giving the genealogy of a certain family, as giving the history of a certain individual, as giving history of a certain village, as giving history of a certain nation. By nation in an African context, it doesn't mean South Africa. A nation, it refers to a group of, peop of people that pay allegiance to a certain king. And they, those chiefs under each uh, villages, they are paying allegiance to a certain king. That is a nation in the African context, not the borders that were created uh, during the late 18th century. 
that give a country's name, but the nation will have a Barolo nation, for example. Uh, yes, that is, uh, and then we're using uh, praises, and uh, the praises start with at an individual level, at the family level, at the community level, and at the nation level, meaning that everybody is included in that archiving. And then through those uh, family praises, you are able to trace your genealogy. And the other issue that we covered there that uh, talks of Africanization is nomenclature. How we name people, it is a, it, it uh, tells the history of the people. How we name rivers, how we name uh, uh, villages, it, it tells the history of, it's got history. We don't just name a person for the sake of naming. We don't just name a village for the sake of naming. And we don't name rivers by uh, for the sake of naming. And we have given example of how some of the rivers were named, and some how some uh, families name uh, children. In in that way, it is a way of uh, keeping a record. And then the people who can interpret those records, they are able to write history from such. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different kinds of of records that like European archives don't don't see as records um, yeah uh, another concept of archives that you explore and you write about is this concept of authentication that we use in Eurocentric archives to discuss how records can be understood as original and true and your third chapter explores various methods of authentication that are part of how indigenous records have traditionally been cared for. I would love if you could talk a little bit about what those methods look like and how they ask us to change our understanding of how authentication can work in an archive. Thank you for the question. It is a tough one, this one, uh, in the sense that, and even in my introductory remarks, I did make a, a disclaimer that the Eurocentric way of archiving has developed, and it is what we are using. And then indigenous archives are more uh, than in, here in the southern tip of, uh, of Africa. And uh, in terms of authentication, as much as the word might not be authentication, we found an equivalent word that we can use to be authentication. And uh, we also didn't want to start on a clean slate and say that already the archives are authenticated. But for ours, what can we say, how they are authenticated traditionally, and whether the, uh, the archival principle can also be used to authenticate these indigenous archives. But traditionally, they were also authenticated uh, in different ways. Uh, in the sense that, uh, uh, for example, with a family praise, they are performed in a natural setting. In a natural setting, that is where uh, if, uh, if people are rendering their family praise or any other praise or in the event. And in those events, people are available as evidence, uh, as witnesses to what is happening. So those people, uh, for example, myself in that, uh, in, in those events, I would not recite their best uh, family praise as mine because people are there, they are witnessing, they will say, no, this is not baby. And even when you are 
traveling and then you are in a certain community, you introduce yourself. You are able to introduce yourself through your clan name and then your clan race uh, poem. And people are able to recognize you through that. But the, we went deeper and also to conclude at the end of our book that oral he, uh, differentiate between oral history as a method and oral history as it occurs in its natural setting. As a method, we are saying that what we, the academics are doing when they record or other group of people, what they are doing, they are actually doing oral history as a method, but it's not oral history that we are actually talking about it as it happens in its natural setting. And you are not, people are not recording it. You can record it, but the one that it's happening as a, a method, it does have uh, some limitations. So those are some of the uh, differentiations that we are saying that uh, we should uh, uh, be making. But uh, if it is happening, in its natural setting, there are people to authenticate it as witnesses, just as in blockchain technology, which is happening in terms of uh, 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 with the chains which uh, uh, can verify the other chains. So even oral history works uh, the same in terms of uh, authentication. And then the last uh, example that I may use is uh, uh, in our tradition, when you pay dowry or what we call lobola, you cannot go alone. It is uh, not the cultural, you are not allowed to go alone. You need witnesses so that you are not going to take out money and say, no, they only charged me so much. And then you forget another money. So that is way, the way of, uh, 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 of authenticating is uh, you need witnesses. So for us, for you to corrupt that information, you need to collude with those witnesses then, of which it might be, Difficult. So cooperation and uh, witnesses, they are the key. And maybe uh, uh, Cindy so can uh, add on terms of the, the, the king as having the authority, just like the National Archives having the authority of records in its custody, the king's uh, last week. Thank you. Yes. So the very important thing is the witness. Even when somebody is about to die, we uh, people are not writing down their the wills or how the property should be distributed after the death, but they may call family and they will tell the family what should happen when I when I die. So the issue is all about the the witness. Even when it comes to the issues of who is going to to succeed the king, it was also the weight of mouth which was passed from the king to the people who are listening. So that uh, after the death of the king, people know who's going to take over. So just end there. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, and I think a, a related theme that came up is the idea of ownership of archival material and intellectual property. How should we navigate issues of copyright and ownership of intellectual property in indigenous archives? And how can we reconcile these Eurocentric understandings of ownership with traditional indigenous understandings of property? Yes, this one. Is, oh, okay, uh, you can go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
Yeah, this one was also a difficult one because when you talk about uh, European civilization, it's more of individualism. Individuals owning these records, these records, these records are being owned by this company, these records were donated by so and so. But when it comes to Africa, it's more of communalism, where the knowledge is shared by the community. So it's very unfortunate now that you will find a book talking about the African province, which is a book which is now written down and some people claiming that he or she is the author of that book. So one asks himself, is this person trying to say that these African proverbs belong to him or her? So it's a very tricky question at the same time because uh, you are saying uh, we own this uh, knowledge communally, but at the same time, we're not able to protect that knowledge. It's not easy. But when you look at the Eurocentric approach, it's, it's easy for, for copyright to be implemented. There are laws, there are regulations which govern copyright. But when it comes to communal knowledge, it's easy for us to say we own this communal knowledge. But at the same time, we can't, we don't have any regulations to that effect. So let me pause there and ask the Prof Ngwepe to continue on that one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh... Thank you. Yes, with regard to ownership. As uh, uh, Cindy so has indicated, the ownership is a collective and uh, starting from the individual to the family, to the community and to the nation. To the nation, I would say uh, uh, as represented by the, the king. Because for example, if I have to give the rock art paintings, if they are in the jurisdiction of a particular king, they belong to that uh, jurisdiction. But when we looked at the uh, legislation, we did look at, analyze the legislation for us to complement this rather than uh, the, the traditional way of uh, ownership. And then uh, we found that in Zimbabwe, there is only, uh, they only talk about the folk tales saying that if they are originating from Zimbabwe and if there is uh, any any proceeding that comes out of, let's say, movies uh, created out of that, they should be able to get the royalties uh, uh, in that regard because they're owning copyright. And uh, so what we couldn't establish is how are they going to identify whether a particular folk tale is originating from Zimbabwe. And the same applies to the rock art paintings in a particular uh, jurisdiction of a certain king for if uh, people are coming to visit and then view, normally you find that the municipalities now are taking over. In South Africa, as much as now the, the traditional leadership is uh, recognized, it's still a challenge and a tall order because the legislation do not make provision for this uh, kind of archives uh, in terms of uh, ownership. They still give them to the states like those uh, rock art paintings, for example. And uh, I would understand in terms of the family, maybe the, the family is the one that can give uh, permission for a person to use a particular family praise if they are writing a movie, they are writing a novel or whatsoever. But 
as it stands, we they apply what you, what I will call a copy left, wherein you use it without any. Uh, if you are not going to benefit financially from any, uh, you just use it without uh, getting any permission in the sense that uh, anybody can use it. I've, I've seen a situation wherein people can just recite uh, family uh, praises and uh, and such things. But I would, we do recommend that the government should actually legislate this uh, uh, better. Although the South African government has got a policy on indigenous knowledge, it's too broad that it 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 includes the entire knowledge system, which is a, a knowledge system for me. Indigenous knowledge system is equivalent to a, a Eurocentric way of doing things because it doesn't uh, zoom only to archives, indigenous archives. It's, it touches even the medicine, it touches even the astrology and everything. So it is too broad that. We require uh, at, an, indi at uh, an individual level of uh, indigenous archives. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a important um, issue to to clarify and figure out um, with with policy. And then another really big issue that you write about um, in the last chapter, but also in in the case study that you explore before that is sustainability. Um, and so you write about this a lot, I thought, in the case study about the gay and lesbian memory in action, which is a community archive in South Africa. Could you describe some of the ways that you suggest indigenous archives might set themselves up for sustainability? Let, let me just uh, give uh, just a brief uh, uh, background and then uh, Cindy so can uh, uh, give uh, more information. Uh, with regard to sustainability, what as we uh, were researching the book, we, we saw that uh, people tend to just uh, uh, continuing elitism, what we call elitism in critical emancipatory, in the sense that uh, they see uh, this uh, oral history, more especially oral history. They see it as a, just go and collect oral history, record it, and then put it in the archives. So for us, it's still a perpetuation of elitism. And uh, the, that oral history is also losing its oralness because it's no longer oral history. Once you convert it to in the, the new format, for me, it's no longer oral history. The oral history is still out there. This one is a new thing, it's a record. So. We need it. Uh, uh, we need a sustainability uh, uh, for for this uh, oral history, and uh, also the the suggesting uh, deciding whose story to record is another problem in South Africa and Zimbabwe, because we tend to look at the stories of those who were freedom fighters or the elite members of uh, societies. So we are saying that they should be able to sustain themselves without uh, changing any form. If they change any form, they are new records. Like uh, uh, where I come from, uh, the, as I gave the background of Mahaving, we are establishing an open uh, air museum as a, a sort of a, a way of uh, sustaining these archives and then in its natural setting, and then people can see that this is not uh, disrupted. But as globalization and uh, modernity comes in, it is also disturbing this way, like uh, your mining, for example, they will come and then everything will be destroyed. So 
But uh, uh, I would allow Cindy so to give an example of how the Gay and Lesbian uh, Museum Oral History Project uh, can be seen as a case or lessons in terms of how we can sustain these uh, uh, indigenous archives. Thank you. So when we look at the Eurocentric archive, it is a very contested space where those who are in power are usually the ones who are telling their stories using the archives. So it is that space where the history of colonialism still lives. So when one talks of, uh, of Eurocentric archives, it becomes difficult to say these Eurocentric archives can accommodate the stories of the, of the marginalized, the stories of the minorities. So the, the, there is a concept called community archives. So community archives are more free. They are not governed by standards, archival standards. They are not governed by all these rules, archival rules. People can archive what they want when it comes to community archives. We find that in community archives, there is a thin line between museums, libraries, galleries. People just mix records, they just mix everything. So they tell their story in the way they want without any, any restrictions. But when it comes to, 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 to the Eurocentric archive, that's not possible. So we're saying um, these indigenous archives can be better preserved in a community archive setup. Because in a community archive setup, it's easier to, to, to archive in the way you want. So that's uh, what we are saying when it comes to, to the community archives. So we used the example of the gays and lesbian community in South Africa. They've managed to preserve the archives despite the fact that the National Archives of South Africa doesn't have much on gays and lesbians. But this community archive is able to, to preserve the archives of the gays and lesbian people. So we're also saying the same thing can happen about the, the indigenous people. They can, they can preserve their archives in a community setup. But at the same time, we note the problem of community archives. Because most of these community archives, sometimes they are driven by passion. You'll find that there are one or two, three individuals who are very passionate about the, the whole project. So it may happen when these people pass on or when they die, the project comes to a standstill. So that's the, one of the challenges which is faced by uh, community archives. While least we are saying indigenous uh, people can use community archives to preserve the archives, also note the, the shortfalls. Also the issue of funding. There are no, generally it's difficult to get fund for these community archives. So that's another, that's another setback. So let me just pause there for the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, I mean, you've written so much about all of these themes that I know we can't, we can't talk about all of it, but I hope people will go and read your book um, and, and think more about these issues. Um, and I don't want to take too, too much of your time today, but before we 
wrap up, I would love to hear if there are any new projects that you're working on now that this book has come out and, you know, maybe you have so much free time now that the book is done. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm curious if the book has inspired other new research and archiving projects or if you're working on completely different projects right now. Uh, maybe it means that uh, so we want to explore this concept further, this concept of Africanization and try to, to use it in curriculum development. When it comes to archival courses in Africa, we want to ask archivists, lecturers, how are they incorporating this uh, issue of Africanization in their, in their curriculums? And also, and also to go further and look at how generally these ideologies, Africanization, Pan-Africanism, Pan how they can help us develop the, the archival concept which we want in Africa. We're not saying uh, the Eurocentric archival concept is wrong, but we're also saying there is also the African archival concept which we can also learn from. So we are not saying we should uh, forget about Eurocentric archival. No, 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 that's not the case. So <laughs> we're just saying, uh, let's just uh, think about some of the African ways of archiving. So we also want to, to explore how we can do that in an, a university setup in curriculum development. Great. Thank you. Yes, meaning that uh, uh, because uh, some of the, the gaps that we didn't address in this in this book is mostly the, the theory, the theories. We need to start uh, generating theories in this regard. And uh, one also, uh, there's often a question and say that uh, Eurocentric archives have established themselves and then they've got a market in terms of economy and with indigenous archives, so what? Because uh, people would say, what would they benefit to me if I have to do that? So we are saying that there is, they still have a space in the new world. Uh, there is a space, even in the AI world, they've got a space where in, uh, we can also uh, do gamification and all other stuff so that they also contribute not just to recall the past for the sake of recalling the past. We are saying that the indigenous archives in Africa, they also matter to contribute towards the societal problems because there are some societal problems even here or elsewhere that could have been addressed through the Africanization, but because it was not a part of the agenda, it is not contributing towards the, 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 the problems of the world. So if we bring it in, we say that it does matter that we, it can also contribute towards the solutions to the problems of the world. Hence, we, are, uh, we also have a different, like uh, I mentioned about the Open Air Museum. We have uh, started already. So we want to uh, experiment with that and to see if it really works and can also benefit people, even in terms of economy, not just to recall the past, but economically to also contribute. That is our view. And uh, thank you. Super. Well, thank you both so much, Paul and Cindy. So 
Once again, today I've been speaking with Mpo Nueve and Cindy Sobebe, authors of Indigenous Archives in Postcolonial Contexts, Recalling the Past in Africa, published by Rutledge in 2024. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network.